0: It's great to be here. Uh, we have, since the beginning, uh, when we started our church plant, I, I, I'm the pastor of Res Pres, uh, Resurrection Presbyterian Church. We meet in downtown on Fort and Elm. We started in January of 2016, and from the beginning, we always wanted to try to build bridges and connections with other local churches so that we would figure out ways to serve the city together. And so my dad, we've always prayed for this church by name in my pastoral prayer every week, and I hooked up with Vince, and we prayed together in a prayer group that we've had. And uh, so it's just great to be. Hey, here we go! It's <laughs> great to be here today and to be sharing uh, worship together with you. And I hope that we can find other ways to do that. Let me, let me put a quick shameless plug in. For uh, on October seventh at our church, we're having a, a art show and a music event called Beautiful Disaster Two. It's the second one we've done. It'll be in our courtyard at our church, which is a beautiful space. Uh, speaking of propaganda is going to come and be doing spoken word. Haley Montgomery is playing. There's another app with a bunch of visual artists showing their art. So you're all welcome to come to that if, you, if you're able. It's free and you want to come and, uh, and enjoy that with us. Okay, so we're gonna, today we are going to I'm gonna preach out of the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a, it's an astonishing book. It was really. It's timeless. Uh, in, in many different ways, and I'm going to preach on this passage in chapter three, which is a um, a poem that the author of Ecclesiastes writes. The author of Ecclesiastes uh, Ecclesiastes presents himself as the preacher, really more likely the pastor. He presents himself as a pastor, giving wisdom and advice. And in chapter three is this poem that is probably it might be one of the most famous parts of the Bible. Because of the birds in the nineteen sixties. Anybody remember does anybody remember the birds and their song based on this based on this text? Well, because of that, it's a very famous passage, but we're gonna get in a little deeper today and find out what it is that the pastor was actually telling us. So let me let me read it and then we will get into it. Amen? Okay, here this is God's inerrant word. Starting at Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse one. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. The time to seek, the time to lose, the time to keep, the time to cast away, the time to tear, the time to sow, the time to keep silence, and a time to speak, the time to love, a time to hate, the time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen that the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, and he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that what God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people would fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil, for this is God's gift to man. This is the word of the Lord. Can we pray once more real quick? Father, we thank you for your word, we thank you for the blessing it gives us, how it teaches us about your incomprehensible power, how you were father over us, how you love us, how you were guiding us, how you are shaping us into the image of Christ, even now, and how you promised to complete that work and bring us into perfection and eternity forever. We pray that you would help us to see that and see Jesus in this text, <coughs> where we pray you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we've, uh, it's been a rough week for us. <laughs> So you ever notice that life just keeps coming at you, sometimes harder than other times? We have, beginning of the week, um, our, my, our kids, if you have, for those of you guys who have kids, you know that when one kid gets sick, you're going to start, you expect the other kids to start falling like dominoes. And uh, so we have, we have five people, we've got three bedrooms, you, you know, my wife and I are like trying to shuffle kids around to the sick room, to the well room, to try and keep them away from each other, but to no avail. One gets sick and the other gets sick. And then, of course, they can't go to school to get sent home from school. And, and so my wife is stressed about that this week. And to make matters worse, I was on a camping trip to Mount Whitney, climbing Mount Whitney, uh, the middle of the week, and it turned into a, a snowstorm. It turned into a hailstorm. It turned into deluge. It turned into thunder and lightning cracking off around us. Uh, and, so, and, and so I wasn't there to help my wife she's calling me frantically going oh, sister, I'm running into school I have to do a field trip. you gotta come home what are you doing I'm on the mountain I'm covered in hail we're just, we're just stress of life the hard hard stuff and you sit there and you wonder why did I volunteer for this or why is this happening to me? But then as time goes by, they turn into good memories, funny stories, and you end up realizing at the end of it that those are the things that really made you a stronger, better uh, person who is forced to trust in God even more, right? Um, My oldest daughter, Hannah, who is here today, she's starting to feel the stress of life right now for the very first time in the form of the, the first grade spelling test. (laughs) she is she's like me unfortunately she's got i gave her all my perfectionism so if she doesn't know perfect she's frustrated if she's afraid she's going to get it wrong she'll start she'll be there practicing shaking she'll start to hyperventilate (laughs) literally you'll see beads of sweat start forming on her upper lip she's trying to draw the s in just the right way She gets frustrated if she's afraid she's gonna get it wrong. She gets so frustrated she just wants to quit and not do it. In her mind, she would rather just play with her friends, eat ice cream, three meals a day, uh, and watch hours and hours and hours of mermaid movies on TV. In her mind, then life would be great, perfect, right? But as her dad, I know that's not true. I know that she has to sweat through the hard stuff because the hard stuff are the things that shape us, that beautify us, that strengthen our character, that give us the opportunity to exercise virtue so that we become people who are not rattled, so that we become people who can be faithful and trusting and solid in the midst of storms. Uh, And so my, my job as her father... It doesn't shield her from these hard things, but to walk her through it, to keep a controlled environment around her so she feels safe, to encourage her, but not to do it for her, to let her do it, to let her suffer through the hardship so that she comes out on the other side better, stronger, uh, more trusting of God. And God, our Father, is really the same way with us. If I get honest with myself, I'm more like my daughter than I wanted to be. I want everything to be comfortable and easy all the time. In fact, I, I actually expect it. I don't know if that's a cultural thing or what, but I, I expect things to be kind of easy and, and, go, and go smoothly all the time. And In fact, when they don't, I get angry. In fact, when they don't, sometimes when they don't go the way I want them to or things start to get hard, I get angry at God, and I start blaming God, thinking God's not fair. God doesn't have my back. God is forgotten about me, or God is punishing me. But the reality is, God, our fathers, just is is in many ways like we are with our kids. He is allowing these things, hardship, suffering, to come into our lives for a good and perfect purpose. He's He's overseeing all the intimate details of our lives growing us in Christ, growing up in us in faith, and he's overseeing and controlling all of the big events of world history to bring about his good and perfect end, which is us in the new heavens and the new earth, perfected in righteousness with him in glory forever. Amen. Amen. That's what we're looking forward to. He is using his power. God's goodness is so good that he wants better for us than to eat ice cream and watch mermaid movies all day. He wants us to grow and be strengthened and become like Jesus. And so God is using his power to make all of these things beautiful for us. The good, the bad, the hard, the easy. And that's basically what this passage is talking all about. If we could, if we could boil this whole, this whole passage down into one sentence, into one big idea... This is what it would be. It would be this. It would be, God our Father is in control making all things beautiful so we can trust him and enjoy life. Let me read that that again. That's how I roll as a preacher. I give a big summary statement of the whole passage and then we're going to break this sentence down one little piece at a time through the text. Let me read it again and then we'll get into it. God our Father is in control making all things beautiful so that we can trust him and enjoy life. Let's look at that first part. God our Father is in control. Before we start looking at before we look at the poem itself, we need to, to look we need to reset our minds to be thinking about God in, this, in the way that Hebrews did in the first century. Uh, and we have to do that, we have to start at the end of the passage, at the end of the passage, the preacher talks about how the Hebrews saw God and thought about God. And once we get that down, then we can get into the poem. So let's do that first. He tells us basically three things. First is that God is in perfect control of everything. Look at verse uh, three fourteen. The first first half of it, he says, "I perceive that whatever God does endures forever." Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. This is talking about what theologians call the decree of God, the eternal decree or plan of God. That from before the foundation of the earth, God has a set plan to bring salvation to the world, and if he is going to accomplish it, and he is in control of all things to make that happen. Now we have to stop here and ask another question. What is, to what extent does God Control things. just God is God only controlling the good things and not the bad things? Theologians argue about this all the time. We don't have to get into the depths of that argument about whether God is controlling every individual minutiae of everything in your life. What we do need to know is God is God in control of the good and the bad? Is God control of so, of, of everything that happens? And the answer to that comes from Isaiah. We can read a verse in Isaiah. That's one of my favorite verses because it, it shocks our American Christian sensibilities. Let me read it. This is Isaiah 45, 6-7. This is the Lord speaking. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. We don't have to go to the depths of that question, but we do need to acknowledge what Isaiah is saying, that God is is responsible in his his power, in his control of at least that scope of things, the good, the bad, calamity, blessing, light, darkness. Second thing is that all things are eternally present in the mind of God. Look at verse 15. It says this, that which... Which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. That last phrase, God seeks what has been driven away, is very hard to translate out of the Hebrew. Those of you who have the NIV, if you look at the NIV in the, the side note of the NIV, it says what I think is probably the closest rendition, which says God calls back the past. In other words, this isn't talking just about the fact that God is in control of bringing cycles of life onto the earth over and over again. It's saying more than that. It's saying that in the mind of God, all things, past, present, future, all potentialities, everything is eternally present in the omniscient, all-powerful mind of God. Third thing. Last piece of the puzzle. Look at verse 11, last half of verse 11. It says, also, he has put eternity in the man's heart so they cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. In other words, what that's saying is, is we've been given the ability, God has given us as created creatures, as creatures, the ability to to grasp the concept of eternity and eternality without being able to experience it or without being able to fully understand it. We, We can, you know, if you think about that, you think about. Eternity, a timeless existence where all things are present in the eternal now. We can talk and we can form sentences like that and we can grasp like a little corner of it, but when, you, when it's really your mind starts to try to comprehend what that would be like or what eternity really is, dust cloud, thoughts scattered. It's like trying to conceive of the edge of the universe. What is the edge of matter expanding into? Those kind of things where your mind just hits hits the wall, shuts down, we can't go any farther. We can kind of grasp the concept that God has given us the ability to do that, but we can't really understand how big that actually is. Okay, the big picture. So all those things combined to the Hebrew mind of the first century their basic understanding of God, first and foremost, before anything else, was this God of incomprehensible power, a sort of something so far above and beyond us, uh, to be almost unknowable, and yet we know him because he's made himself known to us through revelation. A God who is incomprehensible power, he is in perfect control of all things, from the revolutions of, of electrons around neutrons in the smallest atom to the greatest galaxy, God is holding all things together in control of all things by His power, holding it together, making His eternal plan happen. Boom! And now we we take now that we have that concept of God, and now we contrast ourselves against it. And it helps us to see, it's meant to make us see how big God really is, how powerful God really is. And so what are we supposed to do with that? Now that we get it, fortunately he tells us in verse 14, it says, God has done it, he's let us in on all of this so that people would fear before him. So that people would fear before him. Fear of God. A uh, prominent theme in the Bible, probably one of the least popular ideas in the world today. I, uh, I, have a friend, um, I have a friend named Dimitri who categorically rejects Christianity because of this idea. To him, the idea of fearing God is, just, is the most patently ridiculous religious idea he's ever heard. Because for him, where he's coming from is, is man being the center of the universe. To him, his concept of God is not incomprehensible power in control of all things. His concept of God is really the genie that greases the wheel uh, of the, the greases the wheels of the universe in our favor when we need it. God's the pinch hitter. God's the supernatural. God's the uh, you know God's the, the grandfather that you go to for a little supernatural help when you need it. Is a side, a side entity, an afterthought. And so for him, the idea of fearing God is just ridiculous. For a lot of people, that's true. There's a couple ways that we need to understand this idea of fearing God. The first one is just that straight-up understanding of fear, terror. When we, when, we, when we consider the incomprehensible power of God, it should make us... A little bit sketchy, right? Have you ever stood like too close to the railroad tracks when a train goes by? And you got to get to that feeling, like, you know you're 10 feet away, but you're like, man, I gotta run. Power. You sense the power of that train. You know what would happen to you if you crossed it. And so you have genuine respect, real fear of that train, right? Now it's predictable, it's just Lord willing, stay on the track. <laughs> So you're safe. As long as you approach the train the right way, you're safe. But if you approach that train in the wrong way, if you approach that train in a foolish way, if you approach that train in a prideful way, you stand on that track and you say, I'm bigger and stronger than this train, what's going to happen? You are going to be proven wrong. Yeah so there's that sense where we we understand the immense power of God. And that's a fearful thing. But at the same time, look what it says. It says fear before him. It doesn't say fear and run away. It says fear before him, to be before him. There's also a sense of reverence and of awe in who God is. Without diminishing any of the incomprehensible power of who God is, we also remember but this is the same God who has invited us to call Him Father. In fact, the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. the, of the Lord. Each, each phrase of the Lord's Prayer is really a, a jump-off point for or a, of ideas for a greater uh, universe of prayer. When we say, when we say, you know, Our Father who art in heaven, we're confessing both of those things. God has made Himself known to us. He has descended. To us, he's, he, has, he has come into covenant relationship with us. He has made an oath, sealed it in his own blood, promising that he will never ever forsake us, and that he's invited us to call him Father. Everything that means care, protection, guidance, discipline, <coughs> love that a Father provides, and then our Father who art in heaven. We also remember that that same Father is the God who created the universe. And the kind of unimaginable power that is behind that. And what is a good what, so what does a good father do for us? That has that much power? Same thing that I would want to do for my daughter, but in a perfect way. Discipline, protect, walk through hard things, bring hardship into her life for her grow. All of those things God also does for us. And so now we can go second part and look at the poem. We've got our mindset set to a good Hebrew first century vision of God, uh, <clears throat> part one, God our Father is in control. Now moving to part two. He's making all things beautiful. Now we can, make, we can read this poem again. The birds, as I said earlier, the birds in the 60s. How many people have heard this song? I don't know how young this crowd is. Yeah, everybody, birds made this song famous. It's almost word for word right out of the, right out of the Bible. They changed six words for that and made made all that money about <laughs> that song. And, and but they also carried on a long-standing tradition of misinterpreting the verse to mean things that happen on earth or things that people do. But let's read it. Let's read it and then we'll, we'll dig into it. Let me read the poem itself. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. The time to be born, the time to die. The time to plant, the time to pluck up what is planted. The time to kill, the time to heal. The time to break down, the time to build up. The time to weep, the time to laugh. The time to mourn, the time to dance. The time to cast away stones, the time to gather stones together. That's probably talking about warfare. In ancient warfare, they would throw giant stones into the fields so that you couldn't harvest your crops. When wartime is over, you would gather the stones back up again. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away. A time to tear, probably tearing your garments in grief. A time to sew, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, probably about mourning. A time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. And then at the end of this, oh, he, he makes this bizarre statement, referring to all of those things, saying, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, if, there was, if, it, if, if this poem had half of these things, then I can understand that. I can understand being born, planting, Healing, building up, those things are beautiful, but to say everything is beautiful at its time about, about killing, about hate, about war, how do we understand that? If you look at it, if you look at the poem, it's pretty much two columns Column A and column B expresses, it expresses, it's there's seven seven sets of two lines, which is meant in in Hebrew poetry to express the fullness of experience on earth, Uh, and it's the extremes, the utter extremes on each side of human experience, of human relationships, of human uh, doings on the earth. Uh, And here's the thing, this is not not the list, as the bird said, is of, of things people do on earth. This is the list of what God has decreed for us. It's the list of what God has decreed for us. And that's a hard truth. I don't like that, you know? I'm like, I'm more like my daughter than I admit. I want ice cream and mermaid movies. I would call them A. I like to be born, I like planting, I like healing, I like building up, I like to laugh, I like to dance, I like to embrace, I like to seek, I like to keep, I like to sow. I like to speak, I love love, and I love peace. But there's this other column. I would column call A, I don't want column B. Why? And we live in a culture that really, that we think, I think, it presses in on us that if something in column B is happening, if you're in a time of, of death, you're in a time of plucking up, you're in a time of breaking down, you're in a time of weeping, a time of mourning, there must be something necessarily wrong. There's something wrong going on. You need to correct that. God has forgotten about you. Or he's punishing you for something. But the reality is, God is our good, good father. He oftentimes leads us into suffering and into hardship for our good for our blessing. Remember Isaiah? I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light. I create darkness. I make well-being. I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Why? Why did God do that? Why can't we just have ice cream and mermaid movies all the time? I'll tell you why. Willy Wonka. Willy Wonka is one of my favorite Favorite movies. <laughs> I love the old, the old school version. Uh, I just bought a new one, the Johnny Depp one, thinking I wouldn't like it because I'm kind of a traditionalist and a purist, and it's almost sacred the old one. And, but I watched it, and it was amazing. It was really good, so I recommend it. I watched it with my kids, totally forgetting that when I was six and five, I, I would have nightmares of <laughs> 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 the right? My kids were watching it together. My, my five-year-old is sheep like looking at the scene, shaking on in my oldest, hiding under the couch, rubbing, screaming. I'm like, what's wrong with you? Why are you so much taking a chase on that? You guys won't even see. Okay, hyperbole. <laughs> <laughs> Me and my wife are screaming, it's not age-appropriate! It's not age-appropriate! <laughs> so we had to turn it off. We'll to wait. We'll have to wait for another day. Well, what's the story of the movie? It's the story of these kids. Willy Wonka, <coughs> spoiler alert, sorry, movie's been out for 40 years. <coughs> Willy is giving away his chocolate factory. He wants to give it to a kid. He's looking for a kid with character, so he sends out the golden tickets. Four of the golden tickets go to these you know, fantastically wealthy kids who were able to buy billions of chocolate bars. Uh, and there's all, of, all, there's all of these kids that are <laughs> they everything they want, nothing bad has ever happened to them, and they are all a total hot mess. There's Violet Beauregard, she's vain, self-centered, violently competitive. Augustus Gloop, he's greedy, gluttonous, spoiled rotten. There's Veruca Salt, she was immature, brutally manipulative, extremely selfish, and she gets whatever she wants, no matter how ridiculous or outrageous it is. Daddy, I want an Oompa Loompa, and I want one right now! <laughs> <laughs> and her dad sets to work trying to buy an Oompa Loompa. <laughs> and long, she, gets every, she gets everything she wants. Everything good has happened to her. Nothing bad has ever happened to her. And they are a total mess. Charlie. Charlie's grown up in poverty. Charlie's grown up in hardship. Charlie's grown up seeing and understanding death. He's understood disease and hardship and suffering through that. He's built into him character. He's suffering through those hard things. He's developed character. He's had to exercise virtue. He's had to develop patience. He's had to learn long-suffering He's had to learn humility. He's had to learn selflessness and giving to other people. And so he now, because of that, has the freedom to be joyful, no matter what his circumstances are. Amen. <clears throat> at the end of the movie, he has a stopper in his mouth, fine print at the bottom of the line, says so she can't take anything out, takes it out of his mouth, gives it to Willy Wonka, and says, thank you, Mr. Wonka, and he wins, he wins. The chocolate factory, which is a good analogy of the new heavens and the new (laughs) (laughs) earth. Gospel. Gospel's in every movie, even in (laughs) (sighs) So why why does God allow these hard things into our lives? Because we want, I want Augustus, (laughs) God wants Charlie for me. God wants something better than we want. He has the wisdom and the knowledge to know that these. Hardship and trial and suffering are the things that develop that in us. And it's so it's his blessing. But there's something even bigger going on. This isn't just about times and seasons of, of uh, uh, to increase our individual characters. There's also something way, way bigger going on. God is in control of all things, not just about our individual lives, but also as we zoom out, so look at this big story of the Bible. God is also in charge of, perfectly controlling the grand cosmic clock of salvation as it progresses throughout, throughout time, from the very beginning, from creation to the fall to the flood, to the call of Abraham, to the institution of the nation of Israel, the Exodus, the kingdom of Israel, the prophets, everything coming in their perfect order and time until. Galatians 4.4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God's perfect timing. The Savior came. He incarnated in and among us to bring salvation. 1 Timothy says, uh, For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, he gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The cross, salvation of mankind, was perfectly controlled by God and brought about at the perfect time as a testimony, as a witness to all the earth that God, in his mercies, had come down to us and paid the penalty for our sins and given us everything we need to be saved and to be with him in perfection and glory forever. And finally, one one more, it says, blessed be God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Did you catch that? Our faith is God's power protecting us. For salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. We know that in God's perfect timing he incarnated as a man. We know that in God's perfect timing he voluntarily went to the cross for us. And so knowing that he was faithful in those things, we can also know that he will be faithful at the proper time to come back and take us all home. Amen? And he is in absolute control of all, all of that. At our church, when we take the Lord's Supper, We all repeat together what's called the great mystery of the faith. That Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And that is all of us affirming together with all of the saints throughout history, and most of our people are now in heaven, all of us affirming together that the great, giant, cosmic clock of salvation that God is in perfect control of is ticking right along, and that we are assured of our salvation in Him. Same God created the universe. The same God who is bringing about His perfect ends, ticking off redemptive history, ticking off all the events in His perfect timing. It's the very same God who is intimately involved in the details of our lives, building our characters and bringing salvation to us. Which means that we are safe. We're safe. God is over us. He is incomprehensibly powerful. and He is using that power for our own good. Making everything beautiful in this time. Now how should we respond to this? How do we respond to the knowledge that God is in control of all things? How do we respond to the understanding that God is making all things beautiful in its time? Third part. We trust him and we enjoy life. We trust him and we enjoy life. First, we trust him. Now, some of you may just need to straight up trust in Jesus for your salvation. I don't know everybody here. Maybe some of you aren't Christian, wouldn't identify yourself as Christian. Uh, some of you we need to understand that you are standing on the train tracks like this and the train's coming. And you need to recognize the incomprehensible power of God and that you may not approach him in a prideful, arrogant way. But if you approach him through his son, the way that he has given us to approach him, you will be met with grace and mercy and sonship, adoption. But for the rest of us, was will just know God what this means practically, to trust him means, means this. We all need to stop second guessing God. We need to stop second guessing God. When things aren't going well, things aren't going the way we plan. When we fax out our plan for, you know, write out our plan for life, fax it up to God, and then he doesn't co-sign it, he comes back totally different. We want X, we get Y. We pray and pray and pray for some foolish thing that's going to destroy us and God won't get it to us. We get mad, mad, mad. And hardship comes into our life. And you don't know why. That's that's faith. That's trusting God in that hardship to so you know that He is Father, that He is powerful, that He has our good in mind. And think about it. Think about who God is and compared to us. The power that He has in and qualifications that he has in orchestrating events of our lives versus us. Who has, show hands, who has a working crystal ball? <laughs> Nobody? Who can see in their future? Who can tell me what's gonna happen next week? How many of you can tell me what you had for lunch Thursday last week? <laughs> Nobody and you want to be the one dictating the times and seasons of your life? How many people have perfect wisdom? How many of you have displayed perfect wisdom throughout your lives? The ability to take your wisdom, your knowledge, and your power and and, and achieve consistently good and excellent ends. Think of some of the decisions that you've made. You could make a case that you don't even have your own best interests at heart much less others. Do you have the power to make things happen at will? No. None of us have these things. If God has all of these things, it means that he is better suited to be God than we are. the, the, The better we understand that, the better off we will be, but what it, what it brings to us is a very is a very difficult truth for us to understand, and that is this, that if all these things are true, if God is in perfect control of all things, if God um, is making all of these things to beautify our lives, what it means is that we are brought face to face with the inescapable conclusion of the outworking of God being omniscient, knowing all things, omnipotent, having all power being eternal, uh, is that the situation you're in right now, all of it has been perfectly engineered by God for your good. The good and the bad. The easy and the hard. And that's hard. That's hard to kind of sit into. I get it. I get it. There's some things in my life. Even though I, I know I know this, I preach this. There's something that happened in my life. My first thought is wrong. God, this is not supposed to happen. God has forgotten about me. God has messed up, and I need to fix this. It never goes well when I do that. So, really, the question is the question that we're really saying when these hard things come into our lives. isn't so much do we trust God, but do we trust that he's good? We know that he's bringing these hardships into our lives. Can we trust that God is bringing these things into our lives for good? The answer to that, again, is the cross. The cross forever and ever puts to rest the question of whether or not God is good. Jesus is incarnate, incarnate God suffered, and died on our behalf to bring us salvation. He did that for us, out of love for us, to bring salvation to us. Because we know that, we can always know that God is good. We can always know that the hard things he's bringing into our lives are for our good. So we need to get in the habit of not saying, why me? And instead, start saying, why has God allowed this in my life? How is God intending to grow me through this? What is God? What is the blessing that's going to come out of this? How is this shaping me to be more like Jesus? And that really is the essence of Christian maturity. We make a lot of things. We can. We make it about who you know who's the most enthusiastic in worship. We make it about who is the you know who's the most extroverted personality. We make maturity in Christ a lot of things. Who can preach good? Who knows their theology really well. But when you get down to it, grass packs, rubber hitting the road, Christian maturity, is really all about when hard stuff happens, in your heart do you say, I trust you. I trust you, I trust you, I trust you. you." And walk in the path that God has ordained for you. So is that it? Just trust him? You stoic. Suffer under hardship. (laughs) Hope for early death. (laughs) (laughs) No. Last thing. (laughs) The last thing God commands us. A moral imperative. God says, Enjoy life. Isn't that amazing? He says it seven times in this book. This book of Ecclesiastes that is talking about mainly, talking about the the unfairness and the hardship and the suffering of life, the incomprehensibility of why the righteous suffer, why the wicked prosper. And in the midst of all that, there's this constant thread seven times throughout the book. He says, God commands you to enjoy life. Not sit in sackcloth and ashes, not to be in constant woe, but to enjoy life. So, once we understand that God is in perfect control, God's got things handled, God is shaping us in our character, God has done everything in redemptive history, all everything needed to bring salvation to us, that our future home with Him is absolutely secure, we can stop. Fighting it out on earth to get all these earthly things that we think are going to make us happy and give us enjoyment. We can forget about we don't need to worry about having the biggest house on the block. You don't have to have a 67 SS ragtop and Paula big block with a 502 roller motor, close so as your life. We you don't, you don't have to have a ton of toys. We're gonna be simple. We can focus our life on giving, on serving and on blessing, and on enjoying the myriad simple things that God has given us to enjoy in life, and to be grateful for those, to realize this isn't our home, we're camping out here. We are through hikers, hiking through the fallen world, on our way to glory, and in the midst of that, God has given us all of these things to be to, to be grateful for, and to enjoy. Here he talks about food, and drink, and, and enjoying your vocation, the work of your hand. So God is commanding a moral imperative saying, This is my will for you. You ever wonder wonder what's God's will for your life? Well here's a big part of it. Cook an amazing dinner for your family and enjoy it together. Enjoy have a you know have a crack open a bottle of wine or some crap beer on the fire pit with your friends and have a wonderful evening. Enjoy and drink. Enjoy the work of your hands. Work hard. Serve people with your work. Enjoy what you do. Use it as a way of service and a blessing. Have a hobby. Uh, a little later in the book, it talks about putting on garments of white and oil on your head. That Hebrew party dress. That means throw a party. God's command to you. God commands you to throw a party. Put on your white clothes, your oil, perfume on your head. Have a good time. Have a romantic getaway with your wife. God commands this. Enjoy life. Or your husband. Work towards the building of virtue which will give you freedom. And begin in each day in praise to God who is the giver of all good things and the protector of us through this evil age. Amen? And we do it all, knowing that soon enough, God will return to take away all this hardship and all this vanity and all this suffering and replace it with an entirely new world. But we will appreciate the lessons of this life, and we will reap the benefits of them and the fruit of them, as we are confirmed in righteousness and glorified. Living with the Lord Jesus forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you for the astonishing beauty of your promises, which are so great to us. And we know the hardships of this world cause us to doubt. We are getting hit left and right. Sometimes we feel like our, our heads are barely above water. But Lord, we know. That because of the cross that you love us, that we know that you have our best interests at heart, we know you are protecting us, we know that you are using all of these things to shape us to be in the image of our Lord Jesus, and that's what we want more than anything else. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us great faith and give us long-sufferings. Lord, we pray that you would sanctify us by any means necessary, As fast as you think we can handle it, so that we might have the blessing of the peaceable fruit of righteousness, so that we might abound, so that we might be overflowing with the fruit of the Spirit, patience and joy, long-suffering of self-control, of love, all of these things so that we become people who are joyful, not because of our circumstances, but because of who we are in Christ and what we know is coming, because the best is yet to come. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.